Teaching and learning are something that's been happening since the dawn of time or thereabouts. And we do it all of the time in non-school contexts, as do our children. But that doesn't mean necessarily that the things that we need to learn stick, especially when there's an entire world of excitement and interest out there competing for our attention. So just how can we focus our efforts and be more deliberate about our learning? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. Now, they could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they can be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at what is called whole brain learning approaches and how it can help our students. I'm delighted to be joined by Nimish Ladd, A physics teacher by training, Nimish is an experienced and passionate senior leader with a particular interest in curriculum design, research and leadership. In addition to maintaining his blog, Researcher Teacher, Nimish is about to release his first book, Shimamura's Marge, Model for Learning in Action. Nimish, thank you so much for joining me today. It can be difficult for teens to study and learn, not all of them and not all of the time, But there is something odd in the seeming inconsistency that a teen might not appear to learn about the periodic table, for example, but be able to recite transfer values of footballers or lyrics from every single song in the charts effortlessly. However, being able to focus their attention and hone their abilities is an important part of their progression and also key for lifelong learning. Or is it? With access to the wealth of technological resources, perhaps we don't need to. And that's certainly something we hear a lot from our students. Why bother when I can ask Siri? Nimish, before we delve into Marge, a phrase that Shimamura used in his paper was comfortably lazy. So I wonder if we could start by asking, what does that mean to you? I really was interested in Shimura's work and when he talks about this idea of comfortably lazy, he approaches it in many ways and talks about the idea that students quite often are just used to information being given to them and they're not engaging with what they're provided with and how that leads to this longer process of, of learning that takes place or this deep learning that takes place. And it's really interesting when we're talking about this idea of comfortably lazy and that being related to the process of learning to really break down what we mean by this idea of learning. And, and as we go throughout March, we get this real key aspect of what Shimura believes learning actually is, which is this idea to acquire knowledge from our sensory experiences. Now that requires some level of cognition to take place there. So some linking between the knowledge that is being given to us or that we already have and the sensor information that we're taking in. And I, and I think that's absolutely crucial that if we're to understand what we mean by the learning process and if students are to break this idea of being comfortably lazy and therefore just 
relaxing their way through learning and, and expecting things to be absorbed even by even like by the process of osmosis then we need to understand actually what learning is and what that requires is this idea of the way in which we're processing the information so rather than it just being diffused into us so that idea of information just being there in the room and us just picking it up bottom-up processing is what it's referred to in Chimura's paper. It's talked about to be this really inefficient way of learning, and it can actually lead to sensory overload. If we're just going to sit there and let the information wash over us, be lazy about it, and let it just soak into us, we're not attaching it to anything. It's, it's really, really inefficient, and we're potentially trying to absorb too much information that's there around us. And so this is the kind of thing that we might see in our own teens as parents, that they're, they're sat there, they might have a book open, a myriad of highlighted colours, perhaps, or YouTube playing. And it's a very passive experience, isn't it? That They're just there and, and these things are happening around them. So you're saying that that, that passive approach is less than ideal? Yes, it's a, an incredibly inefficient approach, that passivity in learning. We're not engaging with actually what we've got there. And, and therefore, we're going to end up with a disparate set of unconnected elements in terms of learning. We're not connecting facts together, which we know is at the key of the learning process. So what Shimura does, he talks about the ideas, and, and this is an idea that comes straight out of psychology, which is top-down or bottom-up processing. So what we've just discussed there, that would be bottom-up processing, where essentially sensory information is guiding what knowledge is therefore being attended to and, and therefore what's taking place. It's very, very passive, and the link between what is known and what is being delivered is not clear. So the idea is that we go down the route of top-down processing, where prior knowledge guides which sensory information is used and processed, and therefore explicit links are made between the new and old knowledge. And that therefore leads to this deep learning taking place, which is underpinned by Shimura's three Cs, which he discusses throughout the paper. And so when you talk about prior knowledge in this top-down approach, so I understand then that bottom-up is we flood our brain with information and then we're picking out elements of that to become knowledge. So the other way around is we start with knowledge and we attach new bits of information to that. Is that right? Yeah, so, so many different cognitive learning ideas around cognitive sciences build on this idea of us having a base of knowledge and then attaching new things to that. And, and Shimura's work lends itself to that, being a neuroscience-based piece of work, whereas attaching cognitive science and neuroscience together, he shows how that what knowledge there is of the brain links to this. So, so I mentioned the three Cs, which come throughout Shimura's paper. What he talks about with these three Cs are comparing, categorizing, and contrasting. And the idea is that if we're trying to do this, if we're trying to compare, categorize, and contrast things, we've got to have a base of knowledge that we're using to drive that process. I mean, we could categorize books by color, but is that going to be useful? Is that going to be what we're actually aiming to do by this task? Unless we know what prior knowledge we're trying to attach something to via that learning process, we're not necessarily sure that we're going about things the right way, which is why I think top-down processing as, as a model is a great way of approaching things and understanding that, therefore, the prior knowledge that we have in place is there to guide what, and the prior knowledge that we've activated is there to guide what we're going to be learning next. So in really simple terms, does this become almost like a hook? So we already know about colours. So if we can categorise or order the books on a shelf according to colours, we're more likely to remember them because that prior learning colours is, as I say, a hook that we can uh, attach to. That's certainly one approach to what we've got here. So we've got our line through on this. I think the other side is the fact that if we take the word catalyst, for example. So catalyst in an English classroom could mean a character or uh, within a play or, or an event within a play, you know, is catalyzed a plot, is move things along at a rate of knots. 
And the other side, if it's mentioned in a science classroom, a catalyst is, is, is something that speeds up a reaction without being used up. So while it's the same word and they have similar meanings, they're different in different subject areas. And therefore, I think th this whole idea of top-down processing is really important here. While we're diving deep into the schema of a word, we've got to make sure that we're looking at it from the right lens, from the right angle. And, and the idea of top-down processing, so you know, we know that the prior knowledge here is the word catalyst. You know, We go that bit further and actually say that the bit that we're focusing on here is the science definition or is the definition in terms of the plot of a book. So before you mentioned then that Shimomura in his paper looked at the biological as well as the psychological, which seemed, as someone who's read a few cognitive science books and papers now, it seemed quite unusual actually to approach it from that angle. And what do you think the benefit or the power behind that is? It's a really interesting question because when I started writing the book, I've been through many, many drafts of this. I think my first draft of the section which covered the information about the brain probably was about 15 pages too long. It, it's such an interesting area, but then how much use does it actually have in terms of application? Well, that's the rest of the paper. So the way that Shimura structures his paper is he goes through a bit about the brain to begin with, and at the start of each chapter, in, in terms of each of the, the concepts within Marge, he goes through how it relates to what's happening in terms of the biology, in terms of the neuroscience within the brain. Now, while it's really interesting to learn about neuroscience, and while I, I believe that neuroscience will have huge implications in terms of what we have in classroom practice over the next 10 to 15 years, as we get to better understanding of what happens within the brain, especially as part of learning, what we've got to remember is the key part of it for teachers, leaders, students, parents, is the application side of this. So what are the implications of our understanding of neuroscience in the classroom? So while there's some great stuff in here about the brain, while there's some really interesting ideas about the reward circuit, about the medial temporal lobe, around the cerebral cortex, about the midbrain, and especially around the prefrontal cortex and its ability to, to drive attention, it's not the core of what this paper is about. It's the useful background that helps us understand why certain things work, but the really interesting stuff is making those things work and, and taking these ideas that do work and then applying them in a classroom context. Also, you had the feeling of being a support or a gravitas behind his thinking, because this is obviously something that you can't see and touch in the same way. Whereas if you can point to MRI scans of the brain firing up, and as you talk about what's happening in the prefrontal cortex and so on, actually then it feels like he's adding support and evidence to what he's noticing in the learning activity. Yeah, and it's really interesting to go on that journey with him as he almost goes through each of the parts of the, the principles of Marge and gives the evidence from MRI scans, from research studies that supports his thinking and his model. And so talking about Marge, and let's look in more detail, Marge immediately, and it could be generational, it could just be me, but immediately brings up this idea of Marge Simpson. I'm not quite sure why. Was that deliberate on his part, do you think? Yeah, from what I understand, I believe it was. I think it was something that's referenced in some of his presentations that are available on YouTube. He, you know, he referenced the fact that it, he quite deliberately, when he realised it was going this direction, made sure it, there was a reference to Marge Simpson within there. I like the idea that actually this might be tying back to our prior knowledge, because <laughs> we know and we understand Marge from the TV and can picture her. So actually being able then to tie that back as part of that schema would seem to be a beautiful symmetry involved in that piece of work. Yeah, definitely. So Marge is actually an acronym, and I wonder if you could take us through the acronym and what those constitute in terms of this approach to learning. Oh, yeah, sure. So the M in Marge stands for motivate, and the idea is that we're trying to motivate ourselves to action in terms of learning as a process. 
what I need to make clear here is this isn't necessarily motivation in terms of nudging norms and those sorts of ideas, but, but actually around the curriculum. So, you know, this subject area, why is this area so important to understand rather than why is the process of learning so important? So it's a, it's a different slant to motivation compared to some of the other books that are out there. Attend is A, and that's about drawing attention to the relevant facts and information that's been delivered to us. The R stands for Relate, which is where we're relating new information to our existing knowledge base. And Generate is the G, where we're generating information to improve our memory and generating those relational links. And the E is for Evaluate. So that's where evaluating our proficiency in terms of learning. And so do all of these five need to be present in order to learn effectively and efficiently? So that's a really interesting question, because when we look at models of learning, I think one of the things that we worry about is making these into a checklist. So, oh, have I motivated the students this lesson? Are they drawing attention to the right things? And almost like ticking them off as we go through them. That isn't a helpful approach to learning or to evaluating the process of learning. This is more of a framework. So, you know, if we're considering why certain things aren't working, if we're considering how we can improve what we're doing, we can actually look at the principles that underpin each of the areas of marge, the suggestions that Shimura is putting forward. And to think, have we done this? Could we do more of this? So I wouldn't say it's a tick list to make sure, well, this is the process that we have to go through. I understand why it can be seen like that, because it's quite a linear process. You have to be motivated to learn the stuff first, then you have to pay attention, then you have to link what's being told to what you already know, then you, you can make predictions and generate new learning from that, and then you, you check that you've, you've got that right. And yes, that's a very linear process. But as we know, classrooms aren't linear, and applications of what we do in the classrooms aren't linear. So sometimes it will feel that certain parts of this don't fall into that sequence. So while it's not a checklist, I certainly think of it as a very useful framework to use. Because I guess even if they're not deliberate, if you don't start every lesson, and obviously I know that your focus is classrooms and part of your role is looking across a trust and, and curriculum design, but the same is true of study sessions, I presume, so when children come home and they're revising, that you don't need to necessarily have said, okay, my motivation is this, I'm removing my distraction but actually they should be present even if they're not deliberate. That really is crucial. And I think the great thing I learned about Marge as I went throughout the book and as I read the paper a few times was the influence it has on learning aids and how we can actually develop the learning aids we actually use and get more use out of them from using the ideas of Marge. So to take example, if a student is using a knowledge organiser at home, I know quite often knowledge organizers have been treated as magic bullet, which will just solve all problems in terms of student learning. Well, if they don't know how they're using it, they're not going to get anywhere with it. So the idea of March can be applied to a knowledge organizer. So does the knowledge organizer show enough of the big picture? Because we're aware that if students have a view of the bigger picture, they'll be motivated to learn about this or motivated to understand why they're doing what they're doing, and therefore they'll go further with it. Does the knowledge organizer really neatly divide sections up? So if, if a student's thinking, oh, gosh, this is about forces and uh, I don't know Newton's third law very well. Can this lead itself to Newton's third law you know, really, really well? Can I pay attention purely to that part of it? Can I attend to key bits of knowledge using the knowledge organiser? And also then it, it comes to how the knowledge organiser is actually used. So can we use the knowledge organiser to show links between areas of knowledge, not only what is being presented to them, but what they should know already before they even start using it? Can the knowledge organiser be used to engage in the process of self-testing and comparing, categorising and contrasting different areas of knowledge, as Shimura mentions, is a key part of the learning process. But also, can we use this knowledge organiser to evaluate the effectiveness of pupil self-learning and self-study and therefore evaluate whether a student has 
an expertise in the area of knowledge or not. And I think that's where Marge becomes really, really powerful in terms of study sessions. Can we actually guide a student through a study session and through a learning aid using the ideas of Marge? And the answer to that is yes. And like you're saying, it doesn't need to be deliberate, but that process almost needs to be trained into students that, you know, when they sit down with a knowledge organiser or, or whatever the study material might be, right, what is it that I'm doing about today? What key part of this am I actually zooming in on? How does this link to what I already know? How am I going to check that I know this once I've, once I've made these links? What else might this mean? But also, how am I going to make sure that everything that I've done here is evaluated in terms of robustness so I can say, right, I know this this well? It really does seem that this as a framework, as you say, or an approach to learning, is something that ties together so many of the other ideas that certainly we've heard from previous guests on the podcast. So we've talked to Zoe Enser about generative learning, to Kate Jones and Patrice Bain about retrieval practice, which of course was falls under that generate aspect. What really feels like we're getting to here is an understanding of how these things can fit together to the benefit of students. And she said, I'm really interested in I suppose, how it works as a whole, as well as on a sort of that micro basis. And certainly looking at things like the motivation. Typically, we're inclined to think of motivation as being endpoint, sort of big goal. So when you were talking earlier about this not necessarily being in the same way, what we're looking at here is much more the motivation to learn a thing. Is that right? Yeah. So in terms of motivation, it's about expanding. And Shimura talks about the idea of pleasure-seeking experiences. So expanding the spectrum of these pleasure-seeking experiences that we have to push ourselves into new learning situations. So he talks about the idea of big picture questions to say, well, you know, this is how this is couched in terms of the bigger area of this subject. So, you know, if, if we're talking about electromagnetic waves, we could say something like, how can we investigate those things that are visible and invisible? How do invisible things affect the world around us? And that's a really big question that could go off in a, in a million different ways. But then when you start to go through the rest of the process and you're saying, well, actually attend, we can zoom that in and say, well, these are the explicit learning goals that we're going to attach to that bigger question. In terms of motivate as well, he, you know, he talks heavily about the idea of harnessing storytelling and that idea that if we're going through a process, and I know I'm leaning heavily on my experience as a physics teacher here, but if we're talking about the electric bell and how the electric bell works, you go through the process of how electric bell works by telling the story of causality throughout it. And he talks heavily about the power that a story could have in terms of motivating students to want to know, well, what's next? And therefore that guides that process of motivation and therefore leads students to wanting more, essentially, at the end of it. He also talks about aesthetic questions. So students emotionally engage with what's going on. And when he talks about the idea of the reward circuit, a lot of reward circuit is linked to emotional experiences so if we're talking about you have this emotional link to what we're talking about here why would you make this decision to do stem cell research or why should this family get this and this family get that related to ethics so, so all these ideas around aesthetic questions lead to students wanting to talk about the subject because they feel like they're engaging with it on a personal level and therefore that link to exploring new ideas and run new places also can lead to motivation i mean the stories i mentioned within the book is where i took my daughter down to harry potter studios down in in london the idea was is you know she'd seen bits of the Harry Potter films before, she could relate to a lot of it when we were around there. But the key for me was, she was only four, nearly five at the time, I think. But the key for me was the fact that as she went around there, as she explored a movie set for the first time, she got this real motivation to learn more about movies because she saw how what she'd 
already seen in terms of film had been looked at very differently within the movie studio. She saw it from the other side, essentially. So when, as I asked aesthetic questions to her as I went around, you know, do you prefer green screen or do you prefer practical effects? You know, this is a four-year-old talking about the fact that she prefers practical effects because of the fact that she can actually touch it, tangibly feel it, can see it in action, rather than a green screen where she feels that she can't act it out because she can't see what she's doing. And that has led to her really understanding movies. And as a six-year-old now, you know, when we're watching a film, she'll quite often, like, randomly at a point throughout say, well, that's not real. And are they doing this or are they doing, is it practical effects or is it green? And being able to talk about that with a six-year-old is outstanding in terms of what's happening there. And it's, it's all come from this idea of her being motivated to learn more about it. And she does ask questions about those sort of things. And I think that's what we mean by pushing those pleasure-seeking experiences and those new learning situations. And also, I think on a simplistic basis, that seems like for our teens as they approach GCSEs or A-levels and thinking about revision sessions, that we help them to move it beyond you need to revise physics or you need to revise electricity to actually making it something that's motivating which I was <laughs> clearly why that's the word that's being used and so that they can sense and see the point of it to give them a drive to want to learn more. It's that idea of learning for the sake of the subject rather than learning for the sake of learning I guess is, is a way of putting it so just reflecting back on the example of my daughter she wants to learn now more about films beyond that area because she has an understanding of that part of it so you know if we have whatever streaming service on in the in the morning or, or we're watching whatever tv show there actually is she'll ask about well how do they do that how do they do this and that's come from her understanding that that brief introduction by exploring a new place by exploring new ideas of how a film was made and and while that is a different aspect of learning compared to say the more academic learning that we're talking about within classrooms or the more conceptual learning we're talking about in terms of classrooms i think the principles are the same if students all of a sudden get, get an insight into wow the atom is mainly empty space well that has implications here there x y and z different places and therefore that whole idea of being able to get a student to understand the implications of learning something and therefore the wider reaching nature of it does lead to them to be motivated to learn more and i think that is actually key in terms of the learning process. And so that piquing their interest, and as you say, helps to lead to the next acronym, which is the A, and attending. So tell us a bit more about attention and what Shimura meant by attend. So attention was a really interesting idea for me when I was reading through it. It's interesting when we consider what we're trying to do when we pay attention. And quite often, you know, I will, will joke about the fact that my mind wanders an awful lot you know, when I'm trying to engage in a conversation or I'm trying to do some work, even just this morning, I, I tweeted a picture about the fact that I'm constantly distracted. However, I think it's, it's really interesting to consider when we absolutely push for maximum attention. We know as educators, we know as human beings that it's impossible to give 100% of attention all, all of the time. So when do you want it to be at its absolute maximum? And I think it's crucial that we do it at the start of a lesson, you know, at the start of a study session, attention needs to be at its absolute maximum. And when attention is waning, we need to be aware of that and understand how we actually negate the negative effects of attention waning. Do, you know, do we pause? Do we stop? Because attention is not what we want it to be. It takes effort. And Shimura talks about the fact that it takes effort. And it's an active process. And what it requires is conscious awareness of what we're actually trying to learn here. Yeah, so that idea of directing attention is absolutely crucial. He refers to the PCF, the prefrontal cortex, and the fact that that almost acts as a conductor and moves things between here or there or says, we need to focus on this bit now, we need to focus on this bit now. What we need to do is to absolutely zoom in on that idea and, and be the PCF of our students, be the prefrontal cortex for our students to say, right, guys, this is what we're paying attention to, this part right here. And almost 
take students on this idea of a guided tour, you know, so, you know, we're doing this, then this, then this, then this, and that whole idea of a guided tour and relating things together is you're driving students' attention. So, you know, we're talking about Newton's third law here. You know about forces already. You know from year seven that forces can exist in pushes and pulls. You know that forces exist in pairs. And going through that idea in terms of directing students' attention is crucial. So, he talks about four main things. He talks about explicit learning goals. So really breaking down that big picture into the things that make it up. He talks about chunking. So when delivering content, breaking it into small steps that, that can add one on top of another. This is where we really start to talk about the three C's and using the three C's, compare, contrast, and categorize to direct attention. So, you know, if I was saying, let's say we're talking about contact forces, you know, we could say, here are the contact forces. That is completely different to non-contact forces that we did last lesson. Or say we're doing about the electromagnetic spectrum. Here's electromagnetic spectrum. They are transverse waves. They are waves, just like sound waves, but they are a different type of waves because sound waves are longitudinal, while electromagnetic waves are transverse. And that whole idea of directing students using those three Cs means that they can compartmentalize what's in their head. So they can break apart certain chunks of their knowledge and say, well, I'm paying attention to this part. While this other part is related, it's not directly what I'm paying attention to right now. And then the final part is taking a guided talk. So those are the four main parts that he talks about in terms of attention. And so this helps to keep the students focused and on track. And from a parent's perspective, and also perhaps even from teachers, this isn't hand-holding as much as it is orchestration, isn't it? That you're setting out the path, this is what we're going to be doing, and that can help to stop that mind wandering. Yeah, and that's why I really like the idea of taking a guided tour, where, and that is essentially what we're doing here, you know, if we're taking from holiday and we have a tour guide, they'll deliberately place things in an order, they'll deliberately go from one place to the next to the next to guide us through that learning process, they'll point out parts to us and say how they link to what we already know and therefore tell us what to pay attention to you know look at that cathedral not that tree over there you know those sorts of ideas and it's the same idea in terms of learning you know when a student looks at a body of knowledge that they they need to know that they might be paying too much attention to the wrong thing there might be that small bit of hinterland knowledge which is great to couch knowledge in however that's not what we want them to know in extreme detail. What we want them to know in extreme detail is the key bit of specification knowledge and therefore directing attention towards that is, is crucial. And similarly, I presume if we're thinking about this in terms of whole course revisions, so a student taking eight, nine, 10 GCSEs, that knowing which bits you're going to be working on, this, this chunking idea, helps to keep the focus across the whole course rather than focusing on energy, if that's already what they know, that they can make sure that their attention is spread evenly or appropriately to the areas that they need to attend to. Yeah, exactly. But I also think you can flip it entirely on its head. So if you know that there's a core 20% upon which so much of the content rests on, and you know from your formative assessment and everything that you've done, or students are aware of that, that these are bits that they're weak on. And they know that this is that core 20%. We can direct them through the idea of attend, through the idea of making explicit learning goals towards that 20% to say, you've got to know this. If you don't know this, the rest of it has nothing to build on. And so the three C's that you mentioned there, comparing and contrasting, categorizing, relates directly back to, actually relate, and this ability to build on schemas and to link what we're learning now, what we're doing now, to something that we already know. 
Yeah, and Shimura talks about the idea that when we relate things, that's how we make it stick. So if we're not relating knowledge together, it's not going to stick. So one of the phrases that you absolutely throw straight out there is relate it to make it stick. And I think it's crucial that we do this. When he talks about relating things, he talks about using mnemonics to relate concepts. So sometimes there is core factual learning that we just have to know, you know, the colours of the rainbow, the waves of the electromagnetic spectrum, going back to that for a second. We have to know what they are, and sometimes we need a mnemonic to do that. Now, that means that those key facts are learnt by rote, potentially, or learnt using this mnemonic, and therefore they can be linked to things further down the line. I think it's really important that we're explicit to students about that idea that sometimes you're just going to need to know it like this, because further down the line it'll all stitched together. In terms of relating things, when we are stitching these things together, Shimura talks about the idea that using movies or metaphors or analogies, so, so these mental movies, mental metaphors or, or analogies, is, is really, really useful. So if we think about, say, the water cycle or the carbon cycle, you can imagine how that's mapped out as a movie, as a story, and, and then we can use that to relate processes step by step by step. That goes back to that motivational idea of stories, but also links together the idea that these things are in a sequence and therefore they're relatable. You can say, well, this causes this, causes this, and, and everything links together. He also talks about the idea that we can relate knowledge using schematic representations. So in terms of ideas such as dual coding or in terms of different diagrammatical trees, that can be used to show how ideas link together. And if we go back to the idea of a knowledge organizer for a second, I think it's really important that we consider this idea within a knowledge organizer. Are we actually showing relational links between ideas? And the final thing he talks about in the relate section of his book is the idea of applying the three Cs. So while the three Cs can also be used to direct attention, they can also be used to say, well, actually, if we're comparing these two things, there's got to be things that are similar with them and therefore find these things that are similar so you can relate those bits of knowledge together. So if, you know, if we're talking about Newton's first and Newton's second law, there are things that are similar between those two, these two areas. You know, both of them show the link between force and acceleration, while also there are things that are different. One of them is an equation and one of them is, is written in a qualitative way. And the idea would be that actually if we get those links clear in terms of the three C's, we are relating knowledge in a way that makes it more memorable for future use. And certainly I think that really came across thinking about and students learning subjects that they wouldn't necessarily spend their time learning. So I was going to go with physics, but you're obviously a physics teacher, so I'm not going to. But if we, if we were to pick on other subjects, actually, this may not feel like it directly relates to them. And so finding a way in which they can remember and recall the periodic tables we talked about in the open is a really useful trick almost, I guess, to helping them to be able to recall it in an exam situation. Definitely. And I think it's really important to remind students that actually that factual recall is what a lot of learning sits upon. You know, when we have that factual recall, we can start to relate bits of learning together and even potentially predict future learning as well. This neatly leads us on to G, generate, which is something we've talked about before as retrieval practice. Yeah. So in terms of generates, Shimura talks about the idea where that long-lasting memories comes about due to reactivation and elaboration of pertinent information after it's initially been learned. So by telling others what you know through elaboration, you actually embed that knowledge further. So you know, he, he talks about the ideas of talking through ideas with people, and then as you do that, you're more likely to remember it. The reason he leans on for this 
is that you're essentially generating new links between existing bits of knowledge and those generation of new links mean that it's embedded further. Essentially putting something into your own words makes it more memorable. And this links to the idea of the generation effect and the production effect. And while he doesn't explicitly state this in a lot of detail, you can see that that's where it's going with this. And the idea of that if we know a bit of knowledge and we make a prediction, therefore, on where this is going to go, and therefore that prediction comes true, we're more likely to remember that than if we're just told it. Now, this is, I wouldn't say, a, quite a controversial point, but an interesting point to consider in the sense of that balance between discovery-based learning and explicit instruction. So while we've got to make sure that explicit instruction is really, really clear here so that we're not leading students down a, an incorrect path or a path towards misconceptions, we have to also leave space for them to say, well, you know this, you know this, so what do you think about this? And you've mentioned a periodic table a few times, I think the periodic table is a prime example of this. So where there's trends within the periodic table, say of increased reactivity, you could say, well, this reacts with water. This is more reactive water. What do you think is going to happen here? And with that guided instruction that we've given there, and therefore students be able to generate that final answer, they're more likely to remember it. He also talks about the idea of self-testing using the three C's. So the three C's have come up both in A, R and G in all three of them. And he talks about the idea that we can test what we know using the, the three C's. So we can say, compare, categorize, and contrast this list of forces. And therefore, by doing that, we're seeing links between ideas. And therefore, that means that we can generate links and therefore more likely to remember it. So that's that whole idea of, of retrieval practice. And when we get to retrieval practice, we know it's always more useful if it's spaced. So he talks in this area about the fact that giving that time to almost forget what we know leads to us remembering it at a later date in a more powerful way. And this, I think, becomes really the focus of the revision sessions that parents might see at home, is really in going back over what's been learnt. And what I love about this is that idea of storytelling and using your own words to tell someone else. And certainly, I think there was a quote that wasn't Shimomura's, but he's used it in the paper, that when a person teaches, two people learn. And that whole idea that if your child can come back to you and sort of tell you what it is, or actually recently we had an instance where my daughter was trying to <laughs> teach my wife about bearings as part of a maths problem. And you could really see it in her that things that she'd been told in class or that I tried to help with were really coming together because she was having to think about it in a slightly different way in order to relay it to her mum. That is the absolute key of what is discussed in Generate. My sister is 11 years my junior and when she was in physics A level every now and again I'd get the most random text message or voice note or something like that from her which would say some random fact about physics and I was like well why is my sister messaging me this and what she was talking about was the fact that she put it into her own words send it out there and therefore she's more likely to remember it and, and I've used this in terms of, and I've referenced it within within the book about some of the things that I think could happen at home that parents could do and that teachers can use to help parents to help this whole idea of generating, you know, I think dinner table conversations at home are one of the most underutilized aspects of revision time. And, and the idea is, is, is that parents, what they need is almost like a set of questions or topics to talk to students about, but also some form of a resource to check that what's being discussed is accurate. So I talk about this idea of like a five-a-day challenge where we've got just questions that are discussed at home, talking about X, Y, or Z, and then providing a resource to, to check that against. And I think the greatest frustration that I'm aware that parents have from parents even conversations is that whole, well, what did you learn at school today? Uh, no, that, that whole idea. It's so raw in parents' mind that, you know, I want to help, but I don't know how. And I think the whole idea of elaboration and just discussing things at home, I think is an absolutely key idea. And I think if students and 
parents are to understand this idea of the generation of knowledge and, and how elaborative interrogation can help, I think that will only guide that process even further and, and help that process develop at home. So then the final aspect to Marge is, of course, the E and evaluation. Is there something in there that parents are able to help with it, or was this purely a self-reflective process for students? There's loads in here that parents can help with. I mean, the three main things that are discussed within there are the interleaving of topics and ensuring that students interleave topics they're actually covering as part of their, their revision ideas. And by interleaving, you're referring to mixing things up. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we discussed in detail within the book is the idea that, yes, you could completely mix things up and go between different topic areas within different subjects, or you could just go within related topics to try to keep those relational links really, really clear. So I think it's it's important to understand what are you trying to do here? Are you trying to make the retrieval practice a lot more difficult and therefore potentially more memorable? Or actually, are you trying to go through a process of learning here? And with this being stressed on the evaluation side of things, it is the idea of making it more difficult and therefore switching between completely disparate areas. I think one of the really interesting areas of evaluate that Shimura went through was the idea of preventing the illusion of knowing. And this whole idea about or how well do we know what we actually know. One of my biggest frustrations is giving students a red grading sheet and say, right, red, amber, green, or how do they know how red something is or how amber something is or, or whether it's green? They quite often see a word and they think, right, cool, I know what this is about, and then green it. How often have we seen students go into an exam, they pick out the key parts of the word that they know and they write you know, three marks worth of what they believe to be three marks worth of answer on it. And they're actually only honed in on one part of the question. And therefore, I think preventing that whole idea of the illusion of knowing and therefore finding a robust method of evaluation is something that's absolutely key to us. And reflecting back on self-testing, I think that's one of the best ways to do that. And the other thing that's discussed in Evaluate is how we can use flashcards really effectively. And there are many different systems for this and many different ways. And I think parents can really gain something from the effective use of flashcards, making sure that flashcards that students don't know so much are moved towards a different part of a deck compared to flashcards that students know particularly well. And therefore, what this all leads to is an idea that a student would not feel the need to study if he or she felt that the material was already well learnt. And therefore, if they felt they knew something, they wouldn't do anything further with it. And therefore, effective evaluation is an absolutely crucial thing that parents can help with, especially using those three ideas that we've just discussed. That is absolutely something you see time and time again, isn't it? That if a student's got their book open and they're reading through a passage and they're highlighting it, then actually there's a false sense of security that they're getting because, of course, they're not actually retrieving it. It's sort of back in their working memory. And so they are much more confident than they ought to be. So the flashcard approach is something that was advocated, I think, I know strongly by Kate Jones when we talked to her about retrieval practice. I love the idea, again, of sort of mixing this up and the interleaving, as you then mentioned, with actually your degree of confidence. So the things that they know shouldn't just be left to one side and forgotten about, I'm presuming, that, that it's still something that should be thrown into the mix over a spaced period of time, but really start to figure out what content areas need to be focused on. Yeah, and, and what that does is that battles against that whole idea of the illusion of knowing. And I know there's controversy around the Dunning-Kruger effect about the idea that, you know, knowing a little makes people feel overconfident about it. And while it's being looked at about whether it's just statistical noise right now, there's something real in there in the sense that when students believe they know a little bit about a topic, they believe they actually know it significantly more and they're, they're overestimating what they actually know about it. And I think that's absolutely crucial to look at with students 
and for them to understand that just because they know this bit, it doesn't mean they know all of it. And it also doesn't mean they'll be able to retrieve it. And therefore, that whole idea of coming back to things over a period of time becomes absolutely crucial. That was certainly something, as I remember, the conversation we had with Mark Roberts, looking at boys in particular, that there's this an overconfidence about what they know, which can be born through in these kinds of ways. Can't it? Yeah, I knew that already, which is why I'm able to spend the rest of the day playing FIFA or whatever it might be. But really is something that needs to be tackled head on to help the students themselves know that it's actually an area that they need to focus on. That's a really interesting point. And I'll challenge it ever so slightly in the sense that having a daughter and having a, a younger sister, I've seen it in both girls as well. So with one of each, I certainly didn't mean to and suggest this was a this was a, a gender typical stereotype or gender exclusive <laughs> trait by any means. Um, but I think so, what we were seeing from Mark when we were talking to him was that it's something that's quite prevalent in boys. Not to say it doesn't exist in girls. You're quite right. Yeah, definitely. And I agree with that point that it is that it can be prevalent in boys. But it's really interesting to really stress that point that actually as students become more confident in what they know, and I still remember the, and I hope my sister, if she ever hears this, that doesn't absolutely slate me for saying this. There was a point, you know, she was an incredibly high flying student. She outperformed myself and my older brother at GCSE. However, when she sat her AS January exams, because they still existed back then, she underperformed in those. And I, and I think a lot of it was down to this idea of the illusion of knowing. She felt she knew things because she felt she could just rest on the strategies that she used previously. And she ended up, while getting seven A stars, she ended up in her AS exams in the January of year 12, getting, I think, one A and two Bs and a C. And she was absolutely gutted. And I still remember the conversation I had with her around this idea of, well, you probably think you know something. Do you actually know that you know that? And I think, a lot of that came from the confidence of performance and therefore that confidence of actually being able to do things time and time again and get it right and therefore sticking with that. And I think one of the great things about Marge is it lends itself to that process of using a framework to evaluate what's going going on there. You know, is motivation for this subject still a, a key thing for me here? Am I actually properly evaluating what I know and what I don't know? And that's where I think a lot of the conversation around high performing students and when they drop off needs to sit on. Are they effectively evaluating what they know or are they just making assumptions that they know already? And that's why I really, really stress this idea of the illusion of knowing. I think it's such a crucial idea to dig deep into and to completely understand. And also not to predict your future successes based on your previous, on how well you've done in previous exams, whether that's the mock or your GCSEs as you go into AS or A-levels. Because as you say, each one of these is different. And so you can't use that as a, an indication of future performance. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, that we would look at a lower than expected mark in a mock, or I'm sure in your sister's AS, as a way of either a wake-up call I need to spur myself on to really attend to those areas I didn't know as well as I thought I did. Whereas actually we might get a false sense of security from a good grade and thinking, well, actually, if I'm there, I'm fine to take my foot off of the throttle rather than keep doing the things that I was doing before and really focus on those other areas. Yeah, and I think that's where process rather than product becomes a thing. So you need to focus on making sure our process is absolutely key and therefore finding a process that fights against the illusion of knowing and then sticking with that process even when we think we know something. While if we're focusing on the product, well, great, I've got 10 out of 10 on that. I don't need to worry about that anymore. We're going to continually hit a hole. We've got to focus on the process rather than the product. There. And so it's quite timely, I think, for the year 10 and year 12 students now. And we've, we're at the half-term point as we record this. And we have end-of-year exams coming up. And of course, then we're looking forward to what is expected to be, and I think 
many students and probably teachers <laughs> have got their fingers crossed that the exams will take place. Is there some sort of really simple tips and tricks that maybe we should be looking at as parents over the coming weeks and months? Is this a case of really looking at how we can help our children to be motivated and M so that they can hit the ground running, I suppose, when it comes to looking at studying and revision? Yeah, that whole idea of Marge is really useful when we talk about any sort of learning process. So I mentioned it in terms of knowledge organisers, that whole idea of finding that big picture, finding exactly what we're paying attention to, show how areas of knowledge actually linked, almost use self-testing to generate future learning. Say, so, well, actually, does that also mean this? And let's let's go and check that. But also on the flip side of it, use the whole idea of self-testing to check that you know what you actually do know and therefore build those links in more detail and therefore allow us to effectively evaluate what is actually known. And therefore, I think Marge forms a really interesting framework to use when considering the process of any use of learning aids, be that knowledge organisers, be that the idea of Cornell note-taking. So within there, that what's that bigger picture? You know, what specifically within this are we paying attention to? So, you know, what are those explicit learning goals? Therefore, what are the brief notes that sit around each of these where I can link these questions, answer to these questions together? We can summarise things at the bottom to almost generate new learning by putting things into our own words. And therefore, we can produce like a, a little self-testing list after this to evaluate well, how well do I know what has been covered there? Or even make a flashcard out of it that we can use afterwards. It seems to me like a really positive approach and something that students for themselves can really understand. Do you think that was key in what Jim Moore was trying to do here, was to put this idea of learning about learning, the metacognition, into the hands of students as well, so that they could become more deliberately active in the ways in which they go about learning? Oh, 100%. And, you know, it, it's mentioned within the paper and within my book as well that metacognition is an incredibly tricky idea. It's, it's difficult to think about how you think. It's difficult to learn about how you actually learn and therefore breaking down that process into a very simple model makes things easier to understand. And therefore, as a science teacher, I know that we use models to explain what's going on. The atom doesn't actually look the way we draw it, right? That's a model that we use to help us understand. And I think it's really important to also consider the age at which you're pitching your model. Again, just going back to the atom for a second, in year six and seven, that they talked about the smallest things as particles, just as balls. And as they go throughout into say year nine or 10, they're, they're learning about protons, neutrons, electrons as the actual atom. And as they go into, you know, f- further into 10 and 11, they talk about the idea of electrons and shells around the outside. And they go into sixth form, they talk about the idea that these electron shells don't exist exactly in that way and that electrons can also exist as waves. And, you know, if, if we think about taking that very, very high level idea that we discuss at A-level and take that all the way down and say, well, actually in, in year six, we're going to teach it like this because that's what it actually is. That's incredibly difficult because students don't have that wider basis of knowledge to couch that model on top of. And I think what Marge does is it breaks down the model into a very simple model that is explainable to students of a wide variety of ages. And therefore, I think it's a really powerful model to discuss with students. While we could just use the phrase motivate and say, well, you need to be more motivated here. What Marge does is it codifies that process. It breaks it into the smaller steps of how can we actually go about this? You know, do you understand why you're learning this here? Do you understand what bit you need to pay attention to? Do you understand how this links to this? That whole idea of the letters just codify that process. Nimish, thank you for your time and for the explanations of the Marge model and what it means to us. Coming across Shimamura's Marge 
model and hearing Nimesh talk about it is like a, like a mini eureka moment, really. Across this series, we've touched on a number of really important ideas, certainly in cognitive science, in helping to understand learning, such as goals and motivation, generative learning, retrieval practice, feedback, and, and many, many more. But for me, Marge really helps to contextualize and order these, these ideas. Motivation to learn what's at hand gives us focus, and the attention to the learning and active involvement prevents our mind from wandering. By relating the learning, we build on the existing knowledge and organize ideas, helping to make it stick. Generation by retelling, teaching, retrieval, all embeds the learning and strengthens our recall. And honest evaluation is the key to avoiding the illusion of learning and giving us a false sense of security in what we actually know. I can't help but think this is a vitally important model to understanding how our teens can best learn. As Nimish explained, we don't need to approach this like a tick box exercise, but we know our children and could, I suggest, very quickly see whether or not they were on the right path. For example... I know that my daughter understands why she's learning about animal biology, for example, both as a topic and also more broadly in her her own wider goals. But if Emily's working in the kitchen with all that's happening around her, there's absolutely no way she's going to be meeting the attend step. Similarly, if she's working through Hegarty Maths, which I think is amazing, and only watches the explainer videos so that she can get the answer for that specific question in that specific moment, then she isn't generating effectively, nor is she evaluating properly her approach, certainly not honestly. So what I love about this model is the fact that because I now know the connection to Marge Simpson, the acronym is well and truly etched into my own memory. I don't think I could forget it even if I tried. And of course, that's not only deliberate, but it proves the model. I've come across a number of acronyms, especially having spent a lot of my time in financial services, but I've certainly forgotten more than I've remembered. However, linking this idea of the approach to learning to a well-known character checks all of his own relate boxes. And I don't think it's generational. Everyone loves The Simpsons, certainly my children do. And I'm not so sure that this linking to The Flintstones or Top Cat would have had the same effect. And with that clear link to these five steps, it becomes quite simple to mentally run down the list to help our own teams. Some of this could be done quite easily in advance of a revision session, I'd suggest. So what are you going to revise now and how does it fit in and the kinds of questions that could prelude a a revision session? While some might perhaps be more comfortably acted on later. Now, in our own study buddy revision approach, we suggest a sort of a wash-up session at the end of the week with a weekly review and plan. Actually, that's our own acronym, RAP, as in that's a RAP. I can't say that that was cleverly based on Shimamura's work. I've more liked the wordplay. Anyway, in that weekly catch-up and review, you can readily evaluate the learning and, and make changes accordingly. For our regular listeners, you may remember that Patrice Bain talked about how we should be sharing these frameworks with our young people because it helps them to take charge and also they become much more active in the in the process of learning. And this is absolutely something that I'll be covering, certainly the headlines with Emily and actually even though he's now at university, probably with Jake too. Even though this seems like it might be a simple model, on reflection, 
it really has been like a fog's lifted and certainly for me and I've no doubt that it'll prove invaluable in supporting my teen with her studies as she starts her final GCSE year. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode as illuminating and practically applicable as I have. If you did, I wonder if you'd take a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review too. It really does help us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.